Welcome to Making Waves, the podcast for curious business leaders brought to you by Wavelength. Since 2008, Wavelength have taken over 2,000 leaders, physically and digitally, inside the boardrooms and shop floors of some of the world's most admired, progressive and successful organisations, and hosted in-depth conversations with highly accomplished leaders from the world of business and beyond. We've run programmes in Silicon Valley, China, India and throughout Europe, going inside iconic organisations such as Apple, Alibaba, Netflix, Lego and the Aravind iCare system. I'm Matt White and in this episode we're going to be talking to someone about how to be the entrepreneur of your own life. Joining me is Alan Weber, a longtime friend of Wavelength and one of the most accomplished, wise and insightful leaders we know. In this podcast, Alan gives us a deep and personal insight into what it really takes to reimagine and reinvent oneself. Moving from editor of Harvard Business Review to co-founder of Fast Company, author and political speech writer to city mayor, Alan takes us through his experience of learning and unlearning, getting rid of fear, redefining purpose and the rules of thumb to follow as an entrepreneur of your own life. So Alan actually started his career as administrative assistant in the Portland Mayor's office in 1972, then went to Harvard and became the former managing editor of Harvard Business Review. In 1995, he co-founded Fast Company, a magazine at the forefront in leadership thinking innovation, social change, and how all these three things melt together. So since then, become a speech, speech writer, political advisor, actually now is in some ways turned full circle back into the mayor's office. Uh, and the main man in that sense, actually. So he's been the mayor of Santa Fe since 2018. Really interesting career of change and reinvention, actually. Uh, Alan's also written a couple of books, Rules of Thumb, which we're going to pick up on a little bit later, uh, and also the author of Life Reimagined as well. So, very equipped to talk about being an entrepreneur of your own life. Um, Alan's always been full of wisdom, a brilliant commentator on other people's journeys and what they're doing in their lives. So I'll turn that a little bit on himself as a kind of mirror back on some of that wisdom and what it's taken, what it's really taken to kind of reinvent yourself and change and look at it through some of your own rules. Is that a fair use of time, Alan? I, I'm looking forward to it. I, you know, you hit on a very interesting fact, which is most of the things I've written about are not personal, they're observational. And uh, now in this post, I hope post COVID period, I think we're all getting more, uh, a little bit introspective about how have we come through this pandemic, this global challenge of, health crisis, economic crisis, social change. Um, I think it's calling on all of us to think about our life journey and help each other make sense of it, but also look at our own uh, values and our own experiences. Yeah, you have a really important point because every leader we talk to are always time poor and action rich in many ways. All of them say, I have more time, I'd reflect more. Uh, I I think that's absolutely right. I think this has shown your light on an opportunity now and we can't miss it. Can't miss this opportunity to reflect. 
I think. Um, so let's just get into that. And I was kind of reflecting on some of the rules in your book, Rules of Thumb. And I was writing down rule number three, which is actually ask the last question first. So I thought it'd be a bit remiss if I didn't actually ask the last question first. It's an interesting rule. Well played, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> so it's rule number three. Uh, what do you really mean? Uh, and can you give us a reflection on when you actually did find out that it was actually a good rule? Well, great question. Well, the, 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 there are many different moments in my life where asking the last question first has been an absolutely essential part of coming to terms with this sense of purpose. An early one was in the first days of Fast Company, where we published an article called Business as War, written by a Harvard Business School professor who was a uh, strategist in business, but also a, a fan or an uh, aficionado around war and the strategy in war. And his example was the war in Vietnam and the United States involvement. And he pointed out that in the war in Vietnam, the United States won every battle and lost the war. So how do you manage to do that? And the answer was, we, had, we as a country had never asked the last question, which was, what's our definition of victory? What's the point of the exercise? What's the purpose here? And I, I, we published that in Fast Company. Since then, I've used that question, what's the point of the exercise? I've used it in decision-making as mayor. We'll have meetings all the time around what do we do about a problem with swimming pools, with weeds, with potholes, with uh, street lights, with fundamental infrastructure. Well, what problem are we trying to solve and what's our definition of victory? But it's also true personally, uh, because as I worked with Richard Leiter to write that other book called Life Reimagined, we were fundamentally grappling with the question of asking the last question first, not as a intellectual exercise or a corporate exercise, but as a personal exercise. Why am I doing what I'm doing now? Does it serve a purpose in my life? Do I have an idea about my definition of victory for myself or am I simply on autopilot? Am I simply allowing events to pull me forward. And we learned that people typically don't ask that question. They simply become captive of whatever is the status quo, the assumed reasons for doing what we're doing. Mm -hmm. But as we said a minute ago, now that we're in this COVID moment where a lot of band-aids have been pulled off of old injuries, wounds, or status quo activities, we look at social issues differently. I do as mayor. I see inequities where I was previously not even aware of them in our own city. But I also ask questions about myself and our team in city government. Why are we doing what we're doing? Do we have a purpose? Do we have a way of answering that ultimate question, which is what's our definition of victory here? And are we measuring our own lives with the right standard? So if you look back on a kind of key moment in your career, you had a really successful time in Harvard Business Review before you then set up Fast Company. Did you ask the last question first yourself then? I mean, you know, your, your purpose, you're following the purpose you were following at Harvard and then repurposing yourself to Fast Company. What was the answer to that question when you did that? 
I didn't have the right question, but I had the right uh, sensibility. And this is something else that Richard Leiter and I wrote about in uh, Life Reimagined, which is we weren't talking about a post-COVID world, we were talking about a world in which people are living longer and so have more opportunities to be introspective mm-hmm. and to evaluate their life's journey. And we saw that increasingly people were either pushed by pain to get out of their habituated behavior or pulled by opportunity. These were the two levers. Pushed by pain means this isn't working anymore for me. In other words, I've lost track of the purpose. I don't have a sense of purpose. Or pulled by opportunity. There's a new path that would take me to something where I would feel more purposeful in my life. I would feel that all of my gifts and skills and passions were being employed more completely. So in the case of me, the Harvard Business Review, I profoundly was pushed by pain. I was in a position where I could no longer fulfill what I thought was my responsibility to the people who worked with me, who I had hired. The situation had deteriorated. It didn't work anymore. Now, I hadn't yet asked the question, you know, what's the point of the exercise or what's your definition of victory? But I did know that my sense of discomfort or pain was driving me toward asking what should I be doing that would give me a better sense of purpose? And could I be the entrepreneur of my own life? Could I take that next step without knowing how it would work out? Because there is always a risk factor. What if? Yeah. Okay, so let's get into that if we kind of, you know, that kind of what if. I mean, you've taken quite a few steps, let's face it. Um, fast company into politics and all that. What about what about fear? Um, talk to us about how you dealt with any kind of fear that you had at that time, if you had fear at all. I mean, I don't know whether you did. Uh, I think fear is uh, it, that is also one of the rules of thumb, which is I think uh, in in that book is that fear is the gating influence that whether we acknowledge or not really keeps us from being entrepreneurially minded or growth minded. Um, and, and I actually first extrapolated it from uh, Deming's uh, quality uh, list of factors. You know, when, when Deming went to Japan after World War II to try to introduce quality control or quality initiatives, one of the key uh, components in corporate success or personal success in a business was drive fear from your enterprise because fear keeps us from improving or acknowledging what we're not doing well or sharing our, our lack of uh, comfort with the status quo. And it's equally true in, in our lives. I think fear is the gating influence in everybody's life that I've ever encountered, including my own and, and my, my two grown children. Uh, fear of what? Fear of failing. Fear of what other people will say about me fear of a loss of status, fear of a loss of security. Mm -hmm. Uh, When I told my then uh, young daughter that I was leaving the Harvard Business School to strike out on my own, uh, young six or seven year old Amanda Weber said, daddy, does this mean we're going poor? And 
it was very, it was a sweet moment, but also a very um, perplexing moment. Yeah. Because she was giving voice to her fear. What if we go poor? I said, well, you know, sweetie, I can go bald, but we're not going to go poor. Uh, but I understood what she was afraid of. Mm. Uh, I, think, I think frequently we turn over to other people the power to judge us. Mm. Entrepreneurs don't do that. Entrepreneurs have a strong core sensibility of who they are and what motivates them. Uh, they're willing to take a risk because it's who they are. And they know that if they don't try, they won't be able to live with themselves. Mm. When I was getting ready to leave the Harvard Business School and strike out to create Fast Company, I had a number of members of the faculty with whom I'd become friends come to me and say, look, you're making a big mistake here. If you leave Harvard, you will give up a great brand a great job title, security. And if it's not working for you at the Harvard Business Review, you can just put in your time there, punch the time clock, but come work with me and we'll do some cool projects together and you'll, you'll build your brand. And I evaluated that offer in about a split second. And I thought, that's not true to who I am. It would make me comfortable but it would sacrifice my, my soul in the service of security. Yeah, okay, yeah, the image of who you are at that time, because you know, not so many people, whether they are young or old, know what they really are in that sense. Did you have a good insight into your kind of makeup and way? Where did you get that from? And what would you allow to say, you know, kind of, actually, that's not who I am in those decisions? How do other people find that answer? There you go, my friend. How do, other, how do we find out who we are? I, I was thinking today about a conversation I had with a philosophy professor a number of years ago. I was exploring writing a book on um, the four senses, four senses that I thought were like a compass for guiding our lives. And one of the senses that I think is important is a sense of proportion. How much of anything is enough? How much money, how much power, how much glory? Um, so I went to see this professor. His name is Jacob Needleman. He wrote a book called Money and the Meaning of Life. And I sat down with him and I said, Professor, I want to write a book on senses. And one of them is a sense of proportion by which I meant money, power, glory, fame, cars, houses, things, stuff. And he said, oh, great question, great question. He said, I think sense of proportion, proportion is missing in American life today. And I thought, great, Alan, you're on the right track. I said, what do you mean, Professor? He said, well, 99% of the time in America, we focus on what's outside of us, what other people think of us. Only 1% of the time do we go inside for introspection to come to terms with who we are, what our sense of purpose is, what our answer to that first question is, what's our definition of victory for ourselves. And I thought, that's why he's a philosophy professor and I'm not, because his answer is a lot better than mine. Uh, but I do, I do think that the challenge right now, increasingly in a world filled with busyness, 
and uh, social media and judgments and in America, uh, divisiveness, voices of anger, voices of um, intemperate mm. uh, emotions, uh, not getting caught up in that and, and not letting other people's fears inflict themselves on you will give you the quiet space you need to ask that question. If I could do anything with my brief time on earth, how would I measure my own life? Mm. For me, you, you recounted a bunch of um, things I've done. It's a resume. It's, it's a resume. It's not who I am. Mm. If I look at the through line, uh, the through line has to do with making a difference with my life. Mm. I've always mm. asked, you know, if I could make a difference in my brief time on earth, how could I do it? I could do it in politics. I could do it by starting a business magazine that tried to stimulate a different point of view about what it means to uh, have a career in the private sector and, and make a difference, add value through our values as people. So for me, if I, if I strip fear out of my life, fear of the judgment of others, fear of failing, fear of letting... Uh, other people down, you know, um, yeah. if I'm true to myself, right, to thine own self be true, yeah. that's got to be your North Star. And it's interesting. I mean, I really reflect on what you're saying about when other people and using other people's judgments as well. It's, it's really funny how lots of people, when we, when we talk about ourselves, we give over the kind of the CV version of ourselves, the resume version of ourselves. Telling them when we talk to people, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, that's what I've done, etc., rather than actually who I am. Was there anyone it was important to listen to when you made those kind of decisions? Interestingly, you know, your daughter saying, are we going to be poor? She's not going to understand your shift in purpose, perhaps, but she might understand the tangible shift in living. Is it important to, to kind of understand when you're making these kind of shifts I mean, you don't have to listen to everybody, but there might be some people you would really want to listen to. Yeah, I think that's a great question, Matt. Um, obviously, my wife is the soulmate of my personal journey, and she see things, sees things before I do, almost always. Um, and so she's a, a great sounding board. Um, in the Life Reimagined book, Richard Leiter and I talk about creating a sounding board of people uh, who are your personal board of directors. Mm -hmm. You can ask them, oh, you're like, my per you're, you're like my trainer at the gym. What do you see that I need to work harder at? Or you're like my spiritual advisor. What do I need to work softer at? And getting those different points of view can be very helpful. Uh, but I go back to what, uh, what Professor Needleman said, which is um, ultimately the, the position you stand in, the place you choose to stand has to be a place that is yours mm -hmm. and you believe in it. You are the entrepreneur. And so when you think about, imagine that your life is a startup at different phases and you write a, a startup manifesto for how you will attempt to bring yourself into the world, 
uh, you can bounce that idea. You take your business plan for your life uh, to other people and they help you refine it. But if it isn't who you are, if it's who they are or who they think yeah. you ought to be, uh, your, your life project uh, is not going to manifest itself. I, I, I have to tell you, in the world I'm in right now, politically, I'm a, I'm a mayor. I got elected. I'm running for re-election. I get hundreds of emails a day of people who either want to help me or uh, correct me <laughs> or guide me. Uh, and I need to have a semi-permeable membrane. And this is, I think, one of the hard factors to think about. If all you have is a, uh, think about Star Wars and Darth Vader. You know, Darth Vader had an exoskeleton that was so rigid, everything inside of him died. He protected himself at the cost of himself. That's an unacceptable way to be in the world. That's fear winning. On the other hand, if you have no protection and you're bombarded by all of these incoming criticisms, recommendations, advice, and there's no filter, you're overwhelmed. So I think in, in the world we live in, especially with social media being so pervasive, uh, with criticism or advice being available at all times, some sort of a semi-permeable membrane that lets in things that are helpful but not things that are toxic becomes the way to navigate uh, based on your own sense of yourself. Yeah, I mean, I think a part of change is resilience. And I think there's a misconception that great resilience is things just bouncing off people. I don't think it actually, it actually isn't that at all. It's actually the ability to absorb things and see them for what they really, really are and then kind of put them back out into your own rule, into your own world. That's, that's true resilience, isn't it? I agree. I, I, I look at what, when we criticize politicians and everybody criticizes, it's, it is a national, international sport, but there are two <laughs> kinds of politicians that we typically don't like. We don't like spineless politicians who are available for any idea and have no, no core of their own. And we don't like rigid politicians who are unwilling to accept new ideas from other people. And so how do you find that? And I think, the, I think in both cases, fear is at the root of the problem. Fear of not being loved. So, okay, oh, all ideas are great. Or fear of being perceived as having no core values. So I'm only for me. And this notion of, both and rather than either or is this space where entrepreneurs live. You take good ideas, you adopt them, you shift them, you change them, you shape them. Things that don't fit into your own entrepreneurial vision would only take you off the path you want to follow. Let me, let me just switch us a little bit, although everything's linked, isn't it? To kind of rule 18. I could obviously test you, Roman. You remember well, out of the 52 rules, which one is which? But rule 18 is knowing isn't the same as doing. Um, and just thinking about that in terms of kind of the learning and unlearning process that you may have been through when you've had your shifts. So uh, maybe either when you, maybe when you left Fast Company went into politics, that that, was there an unlearning process for you in that sense? And can you tell us a little bit of how you went through that? 
well, I'm still going through it. I, I think we're constantly in that state of flow between a res, re, really depending on the things that we think we're good at to get us moving with confidence, but not being so dependent upon them that we fail to learn new things along the way that are in the moment that are required in a new role. Being a, a magazine editor and an entrepreneur has some comparables to running for office. Uh, you know, as a business magazine uh, founder, we had to create a team, we had to raise money, we had to have a, uh, an intellectual platform or an agenda. We had to have in effect a table of contents that is the equivalent in a political campaign of your, uh, the issues you're running on. Uh, you had to be able to articulate your vision and try to find uh, customers or voters to come along. But then being in office is a very different set of skills. Now you are looking to execute a program. Uh, the press is now looking at you with different eyes. You are under a different level of scrutiny. Um, one of the first newspaper articles about me after I got elected mayor was an evaluation of my uh, and France, my wife Frances's water use at our home and how excessive our water use was because we hadn't adequately re-engineered uh, our, our uh, water system. And here in Santa Fe, we're in the high desert, water is scarce, we're in a drought. The mayor is now setting a terrible example for water usage. I would not have thought that my water usage would be a matter of public scrutiny. Uh, it turns out everything is a matter of public scrutiny. Uh, how, you, how you conduct yourself in public, how you, uh, what, what I think is funny and what, the, what a, a voter will think is a good joke are very different things. Yeah. So uh, this gets back to that exoskeleton versus a semi-permeable membrane. You know, you, all of a sudden, all aspects of my life are open to scrutiny. And so that actually turns out if I had embrace it, some ways it's made me a better person. I've become much more conscious of the example that I'm called upon to set as a public figure. You have to embrace that and turn that into a positive component of, alert, of a growth curve. That's a new learned skill. Uh, but I have to, what I have to let go of is the notion of that's none of your business. Yeah, right, because everything's their business, right? But in that process, I mean, it sounds like you said it's ongoing because you live there. There have been times when you just thought, oh, I'm just rubbish at this, or I'm never going to make it, or I thought I could, but I can't. The real periods of self-doubt in this relearning. Did you have any of those? Absolutely. I mean, I think um, I would not hold myself out as... Uh, uh, any different than anybody else. There are times of defeat and failure, and there are times of um, absolute self-criticism. You know, I can't believe I made that mistake again. Um, I think there are there are useful times for self-reflection and self-doubt. I think there are times when everybody in a position of responsibility kicks yourself, um, and that's. If, if the only position of responsibility you have is to be the best you, even then you kick yourself. 
to things where you didn't live up to your potential or you didn't live up to your best self. Um, and that is, that is part of the journey too, is yeah. to have enough, that's where resilience actually, as you use the term, does kick in. Can I, can I bounce back from a failure, a defeat, a mistake? Yeah. Um, I, I, there are things that I've done in, in uh, this job as mayor I'd absolutely love to have a do-over. Yeah, actually, give, yeah, give us one or two of those, a kind of an example of a do-over. I'll give you one. I mean, I won't name names, but no. you know, one of the, the most important thing that we do in our jobs as uh, leaders is to try to get the right people around us. Yeah. Team building, have you know, the right people on the bus, the wrong people off the bus, the right people in the right seats. Yeah. I have a pretty good track record for uh, attracting, hiring, retaining talent. There are people I hired who didn't work out because I misjudged the fit or their ability to adapt mm -hmm. to being in the public sector. Private and public are two very different domains when you're dealing with uh, management. Uh, there are relationships that I did not tend to that I should have done a better job of because planting the seeds now but failing to water them in relations with say, um, outside organizations, nonprofits, um, other people in political office. If I tended that garden better, we'd have better results now. You know, the investments that we didn't make when we should have made, the, the, the old saying, the time to fix the roof is before it rains. Sometimes I waited till it rained and that's a mistake. Uh, so I think there are, there are errors of, and, and mistakes of judgment of speed, of timing to respond to an issue. Yeah, but you're trying. You, you know, your ability to experiment, trial and error is really important in that. Just because that ties a little bit as well with what you go through and then what you're talking about and with the fit to your team as well. Rule, rule number 36, I really love this, which is about managing your own emotional flow is more important than managing your cash flow. So obviously cash flow is really important to an entrepreneur, let's face it. So try convincing an entrepreneur that the emotional flow is even more important. So kind of what do you really mean by that? How did you, how did you find it out? That, that is based on uh, real lived experience in starting Fast Company. Uh, Bill Taylor was my partner in starting Fast Company. He'd been the one of the most outstanding editors at the Harvard Business Review. We both felt that we had it within us to start our own magazine, a, uh, a new vision of a business magazine. And Bill and I became partners. Um, what was perfect about our partnership was our complementary nature and our emotional flow. So yeah, cash flow is important to every entrepreneur, but in our journey, and it took three years to get Fast Company off the ground, mm -hmm. three years of uncertainty, doubt, uh, good days, bad days, uh, days when we felt we're that close to launching a magazine and days when we thought this is never gonna happen. What, we, what, I, what I observed in retrospect was uh, one of our complementary uh, capabilities was a an emotional curve and sign curve. So there would be days or weeks when I would be at the top of my game and Bill would be at the bottom of his. 
and our uh, emotional average was sustainable. Uh, mm -hmm. We were there was never a time when we were both at the bottom. We would have given up or so high at the top that we would have been dis, uh, just giddy with in the, in the inevitability of our success. We were always able to more or less average our emotional flow so that we stayed with it. We sustained our effort. We, we didn't lose faith in our effort or in our purpose, but nor did we become so overconfident in the inevitability of our success that we stopped working uh, to our maximum effort. And I, I, if you look at the world of entrepreneurs, historically, if you do a, a back check, there are many, many teams of two people who yeah. have become the successful entrepreneurs. You think of the two Steves at Apple. Uh, you think of Hewlett and Packard. Uh, you think of uh, Microsoft and, you know, the combination of characters that were the two, the twosome that was there. Uh, you end up with a lot of pairings because uh, my experience is um, nobody ever succeeds alone. Mm -hmm. We all need either a partner or a team to work with. In my case, Bill was the perfect partner. And the complementary skill set was important, but so was the complementary emotional curve and sign curve that let us sustain ourselves for three years in our journey of entrepreneurial effort. Well, if you apply that to personal life, yeah. um, you know, you can't, if you get too high, when adversity hits, you give up. If you get too low, you never try. So some sort of equilibrium, emotional equilibrium, I believe in, in our personal lives is just as important as uh, emotional equilibrium in an entrepreneur trying to launch mm. a, uh, uh, a new magazine. Right, so a couple of questions are coming up on, with, with that. One is actually, maybe it's a reflection around loneliness and leadership, which many people talk about, people who are leaders, whether they're shifting an organization or whatever they're talking about, no one ever tells you how lonely you might get. So is that right? Um, because given where you are with your experience, your search for partnership in this and having someone else, has there actually been loneliness in your leadership? And then I guess the second question is, when you extrapolated that kind of partnership forward into politics and then becoming mayor, did you go out and look for someone who was more that kind of partner, kind of your buddy? Those are really fundamental and elemental questions. Um, and I'm still working on the answers myself. Uh, again, this is part of the introspection that I think this time calls for. Um, I think the notion that it's lonely at the top and that uh, leadership is a lonely enterprise, there's an element of truth to that because at the end of the day, uh, when a decision has to be made, you have to make it and you can't lay it off. Um, on the other hand, I think that's more of a left brain issue. The issue of loneliness is a right brain issue and it has to do again with fear. Fear of being perceived as vulnerable, uh, fear of opening yourself up to criticism or, or to other people's evaluation or their participation in your life journey. Um, 
I think a lot of people who achieve things in life uh, do so for reasons that are not always healthy. Mm -hmm. uh, I look at political leaders who I think are needy. They're so needy, they run for office. And they're not yeah. there to provide service. They're there to get the adulation of the crowd and the sense of uh, self-doubt is overcome by other people giving them applause. But they don't trust that judgment because they have a hole in their soul, that lack of purpose that we talked mm. about at the beginning. Mm. So there's healthy ego and there's unhealthy ego. And a lot of people in America, at least, who run for office of late, I think, are suffering from very unhealthy egos. They are, they are needy. And therefore, they keep people away from them because they don't trust themselves and they don't trust mm. others. And they are lonely. They are isolated. And I, you think of somebody, a historical figure like Richard Nixon, who became a very dark figure hiding in the White House with a paranoid sense of an enemies list. Um, so I do believe there is a, there is a uh, ultimate truth that the, the leader uh, in an organization has to reserve for themselves the right to make a decision. And that mm -hmm. can be a, a lonely thing that you reflect on. But the, but the, but the, the day-to-day verb of leading doesn't have to be a lonely activity. In fact, it can't be. You have to be surrounded by people you trust in a culture that is welcoming with, with people who want to contribute to the, to the success of the overall enterprise, the overall mm -hmm. journey. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's what a healthy culture really feels like. It feels yeah. like people all moving in the same direction uh, with a sense of not always agreeing, but working toward a, a shared purpose. And yes, yeah. uh, when you become a mayor, that's job number one is to build the team. Yeah, yeah. Michael, Michael Bloomberg, the former mayor of New York, tells a story about uh, when he became mayor, having been perhaps one of the most brilliant entrepreneurs in American history. Uh, mayor Bloomberg, after 100 days, it's a tradition in, you know, after, uh, I guess it's probably started with Franklin Roosevelt, his first 100 days. At the end of 100 days, uh, Mayor Bloomberg was asked by the New York press, which is probably the toughest journalistic pack in, in America. So Mayor Bloomberg, in your first 100 days, what did you accomplish? And Mayor Bloomberg said, I built a team. And they said, no, 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 what did you get done? He said, I built my team. They said, no, no, what are your tangible achievements? He said, I built my team. Hmm. So it really is a team sport. Leadership yeah. is a team sport. And so you're lonely to the extent that you are a victim of your fear. You are inclusive as you build a team that wants to work collaboratively towards shared purposes. Mm. Well, that's a really interesting message. I mean, we title this Entrepreneur of Your Own Life. And I think very often the word entrepreneur will vary. The word entrepreneur is kind of associated with individuals. It's not a plural. I mean, ultimately, kind of what we're thinking about here is kind of being an entrepreneur in life. It's definitely not doing it on your own. It's definitely using people as your sounding board, checking, you know, helping them check with your purpose with others. It's definitely building a team, definitely even partnering with other individuals and making a kind of a collective effort. Is, is that it? You know, if you go back to how we maybe mistakenly think of entrepreneurs, 
there is this notion, and I don't think it's a healthy one, of the entrepreneur as the towering individual genius who overcomes all obstacles by sheer dint of personality or uh, will. I don't think that's a very healthy or accurate description of how entrepreneurship in business or in life works. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, every, everybody is a, uh, we're all in this together. You know, nobody, uh, again, this is a, a Richard Leiter uh, piece of wisdom. Uh, we all have to do it ourselves, but nobody does it alone. And it is that both and sensibility that the best entrepreneurs are the ones who build supporters for their vision, who build, start what was called in the case of Apple, stark raving fans. You want to create social capital for your life and for your enterprise. Social capital is not found in how much money you amass. It's found in how much emotional support, energy, uh, a, a field of positive uh, uh, reason to, to do something that then propels you forward with mm-hmm. your with your team. Uh, so social capital exists in our individual lives. We have people rooting for us. We have people wishing us well. Uh, right now in the States, we're at the point where a lot of graduation ceremonies are happening at the end of COVID. And all of a sudden you've got college kids having, again, graduation ceremonies in public. And that sense of accomplishment and people rooting for you is propelling them forward with optimism after a year that has been the hardest year in anybody's life. And you can feel the social capital giving those young people a a positive thrust into life after a year of deep, deep suffering, pain, and and hardness. Okay, I'm going to ask you one last question, Alex. It's probably an unfair question, but I'm basing it on the fact that you brilliantly think on your feet and you've always got an answer uh, for something. So the question is, you wrote a book on rules of thumb, and that has 52 rules in it. So what's rule number 53? If you were standing on your own shoulders, looking forward, given where we are now at as a society as well, people listening, thinking about their own reinvention, their own entrepreneurship of their own life. I'm dragging this question out so you can think of an answer. So yeah, standing on your own shoulders, looking forward, what is rule number 53? that's, that is probably a, the hardest question you've asked in this whole conversation. <laughs> uh, let me tell you a story, and yeah. then I'll get to a, an answer. So one of the things that's happened in our family because of COVID, uh, I have two grown children, or arguably grown children. Uh, they're still children to me. Uh, one lives in uh, California. One has been living in Mexico since COVID struck. And one of the things we adopted as a family uh, starting about six, seven months ago is a Sunday night Zoom call on our calendar as a a date for one hour. And we rotate week by week. Each member of the family gets to give a different assignment. Uh, And then we have to follow that assignment. Sometimes it's watch a movie or listen to a podcast or read a chapter in a book. Last week, Uh, my wife, Frances, gave us an assignment, which was 
um, it's graduation time. Um, if you were going to give advice as uh, commencement speakers do, what would your advice be to a 27 year old, uh, not a new graduate, but somebody in the, in the course of their life? What would you, what would each of us give as advice? And it's a great exercise. So as a parting gift to, to this session, I would give that same assignment to everybody who's listening. Mm -hmm. Give yourself uh, an assignment, make a, make a list of advice you would give to the 27 year old. Maybe it's you when you were 27, if, you, if, you, if you're candid about it, you're giving advice to others, but it's really the 27 year old you, what would you do? I made a list of, of 10 things and I won't go through all 10 of them, but one of them was not even a new rule. It's a 2000 year old rule from uh, Hillel, the um, Torah scholar who said, uh, if I'm not for myself, who will be? If I'm only for myself, what am I? And if not now, when? And the reason I had that on my list was I thought it really fit the moment we're in. I think we're all in a moment of self-reflection and we have to be for ourselves. We have to stand up and say, my ideas, my values, my purpose in this world matters. I will advocate for my own self. And at the same time, I will advocate for those who need an advocate. I am not only for myself. I'm for the people who I am now seeing with even clearer eyes than ever before need an advocate, people who need help, who have been left behind, who have been left out, who have not been given a fair opportunity in life. And if I don't do it now in the wake of COVID, when would I ever do it? And so I thought it was uh, yeah. a really, a really, it's not new advice, it's not my advice, but it is timeless, uh, a timeless rule for all of us to step into this moment, yeah. be strong advocates for our own purpose in life, recognize our opportunity to be advocates for others with empathy and to do it now, don't put it off. Alan Weber, insightful, provocative, practical as always. Thank you very much. Thank you, Matt, and thanks to everybody for uh, for taking this journey with me today. I really am very, very grateful. Many thanks for listening. It's been a real pleasure to interview Alan today and get such invaluable insight and interpersonal change. If you've enjoyed this podcast, kindly like us on the platform you're listening to it on and keep up to date with Wavelength at www.wavelengthleadership.com where you'll also find podcasts on how to innovate like Lego and deliver service excellence like Southwest Airlines.